from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. In 2007, Estonia was on its knees, the victim of a vicious Russian cyber attack. Since that time, Estonia has risen to its feet, dusted itself off, and set about defending itself in a brilliantly planned and strategic way. So much so that the rest of the world now beats a path to their doorstep, asking how to defend against Russia. Target USA sat down with the president of Estonia, Kersti Kaljuleid, to hear firsthand how they do it. She said it's all about understanding Russia. To try to disrupt democratic processes is one of the approaches which uh, Russia has been taking. She says, yes, Estonia has faced the giant, figured out the giant, and has developed a security system to protect itself. And now the rest of the world wants to know how to do it. But the thing that she says is most important is big countries need to be on the lookout for Russia continuing to meddle. And here's the most important point about it is that, I mean, disrupting Estonian democratic process is as expensive as disrupting a bigger democracy's processes. But it doesn't really pay off. So I think that here the risk is rather with the bigger bigger countries. In our exclusive interview, Cal Gilead talks about the Three Seas Initiative transatlantic cooperation, and of course, all of the things about Estonia that everyone wants to know. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. If you've heard the podcast or the broadcast work or read the print work I've done in the last year or so, you've been exposed to some significant coverage of Estonia on the ground there and here in Washington. That coverage is not because I like Estonia, which I do, but because of its global significance. It's a country in Northern Europe, bordering the Baltic Sea and the Gulf of Finland, including more than 1,500 islands. Its diverse terrain spans rocky beaches, old-growth forests, and many lakes. Formerly a part of the Soviet Union, it's dotted with castles, churches, and hilltop forests. The capital, Tallinn, is known for its preserved old town. But here's perhaps the most impressive feature. The world's most technologically advanced country is not the U.S., nor China, nor India, and certainly not Russia. But it is Russia's next-door neighbor, the tip of the NATO spear, Estonia, arguably, in some circles, the most important country in the world. And on this episode, we have the distinct honor to sit down with the president of Estonia, Kersti Kaljulaid. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you today. Um, I know that there are a couple of things that are very important to you right off the bat. Number one on the list is the Three C's initiative. 
and you've been talking a lot about that since you've been here. So the first thing I would like to do to familiarize our listeners and readers with that uh, is to get you to explain what the Three C's Initiative is. Three C's Initiative is a practical approach to fulfill the void uh, in the countries which were formerly behind the Iron Curtain and are now part of the European Union of investment. You must understand that if uh, for 50 years nothing gets invested, then it doesn't look like it should. And Free Seas is trying to uh, build between these countries which are involved, which are 12 Central Eastern European countries who are all members of the European Union as well, build infrastructure, energy, roads, railways, digital projects, anything which will fit under the label of smart connectivity. And it is a market-based approach. Free Seas Initiatives has a fund. Uh, governments invest in it. Uh, we hope also institutional investors. But the most important part is there will be private investors because we want these projects to actually have a proper return on investment. And this is feasible because uh, these countries in Europe are quicker growing than uh, EU average because they are cohering towards the Western European uh, living standards. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a practical win-win project. But why it differs from what has been done before is that uh, all these countries, of course, have been uh, attracting foreign capital for the last 30 years. But this is the case where they present themselves together as a region. 100 million people living in a common market, because they are all part of the EU common market, looking for cross-border investment to make them closer to each other, because quite a lot of our current links go from east to west, and this means that we are connected towards the west, but not among ourselves. So we want to unleash the potential of closer economic cooperation between the free seas countries themselves. You're here in the U.S. talking about this, among many other things, so I'm curious to know um, what the importance of the U.S. is to three seas and, I guess, the rest of Europe, Western Europe as well. I believe that the Munich Security Conference, it was broadcasted the loudest possible how U.S. is involved in Free Seas Initiative. Secretary Pompeo promised that U.S. will invest up to one billion, provided that the Free Seas countries themselves also invest into the fund. And this is what we are currently working at to make this fund come together by June this year. U.S. has always been involved since the beginning of the uh, initiative, which is five years ago. And this is because U.S. Uh, has seen the opportunity to help these countries to leapfrog and to come together closer and work among themselves, not only with uh, Western or Nordic partners. And probably if you look from afar, you understand better the opportunities. Maybe that's it. Mm -hmm. Also, of course, it is of geopolitical interest to the United States to make sure that the countries at the eastern rim of Europe are really feeling that they do belong to Europe, US and the European Union. They work together on many themes, of course, but this is right now one of the fastest moving uh, mm -hmm. elements of this cooperation, of our transatlantic uh, cooperation. How would you assess the progress, the growth uh, of this initiative, uh, uh, not, not necessarily over the years, but how would you assess where it is right now, where it stands? Clearly, it's, it's, it's on the right track and the path that you want it to be on, but um, what is the trajectory? What, is your next, what, is your, what are your benchmarks for the future? 
First of all, it all needs to come together in Tallinn in June. Uh, all the initiatives, former ideas and actions will be consolidated. And that means that the free seas countries are investing in, and that means that that would unleash then the US uh, financing as well for the fund. But actually, uh, this is a model which brings in uh, private capital, real return, and helps with development needs. This is a practical model. If we pull this off, we can demonstrate that you don't need only to use public money to uh, development needs. This model could then be copied or enlarged, whichever way you want to go about it. Also, I'm quite sure that Ukraine and the Balkan countries could hugely benefit of this or similar schemes. So we are creating a model, we are proving a concept, and this concept has been proven. That means that this investment void, which is much bigger than three to five billion, which might be the fund's uh, volume, uh, IMF uh, is currently doing the estimation exactly how big it is, but we think it might be about 500 billion. So there is enough space for copying, developing, but mm-hmm. the important thing is we can prove that you don't have to give away money to work on development. One more question on the financial part of what you've mentioned so far. How much money do you need to make this viable and work by June? It's not the amount. It's that uh, we want all free seas countries, as many as possible, either committed or paid in, invested in. This is the most important part. The final aim is uh, three to five billion, and the fund will remain open for private investors up for up to two years. So are you talking to um, companies here in the U.S., um, the private sector, while you're here? Obviously. First of all, this fund is not going to be run by any government or any secretary. Our Free Seas Initiative is supporting this fund. It's providing also the presidential level format of Free Seas, but it's run by Amber Capital Management. So all the investment decisions, apart from the decision where to invest, in which areas we see investment should go, Uh, It's a decision by the fund manager, Mm -hmm. and uh, it will not be politically influenced. This Mm -hmm. is very important. And this is the message which we are uh, are giving uh, here to, uh, well, as many business people as we can contact. Uh, And uh, we have had meetings in Chamber of Commerce, uh, Heritage Foundation. We are going to New York to talk to some banks uh, and also uh, the Ember Capital Management itself to discuss how we will uh, approach uh, companies. But also, the Tallinn Summit in itself, it will have really high-level participation, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. This will be also a huge advertisement. Business Forum is there as well. There has been already two times the business uh, seminar as well. Mm -hmm. So everybody's invited. All right. Changing gears slightly. Tallinn, Estonia more specifically, has been in the forefront of security for a long time now, especially since 2007, since the situation with Russia um, and what took place then and has led the world um, in the time since then in digitization, digitalization, becoming the world's most digitally connected country, I believe, uh, and quite often teaching other countries how to harden its digital infrastructure. So how would you assess the security environment around you? We know that Russia still does what Russia's done. Um, but how would you assess 
the threats there right now. You mean cyber domain or conventional? And if you all mean, of them. And if you mean cyber, then either cyber, conventional or hybrid. Yes, yes, all of them. Well, uh, if you look at the, uh, at the more conventional aspects, then uh, we clearly can see that uh, Russia has been piling up equipment and, uh, and manpower at NATO's eastern flank. Uh, what was called in 2009 an exercise support level is now basically daily there, present. So we know that uh, uh, if there would be any adverse movements, we will have very little warning time. And NATO has taken notice of it and therefore beefed up its deterrence levels in the Baltic states and in the Poland. Why we do need to do it at all is because Russia is unpredictable. It has violated borders of an independent country mm-hmm. twice in the last uh, 12 years, 2008 Georgia, 2014 Ukraine. And, of course, while we believe in NATO's capacity to deter and to defend its members, this capacity stems from vigilantly following the situation and being able to deter. And this mm-hmm. is what NATO's been doing. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of paradoxical that from one side you need to say that, yes, Russia's unpredictable. And from the other side you need to say that, no, we don't feel threatened because, I mean, NATO's been adequately reacting. The whole Europe has been adequately reacting. Uh, NATO has 100 billion more 2020 than five years ago for the reason that European countries realize they need to handle mm-hmm. this developing situation. Mm-hmm. If you now look at the cyber risks, then uh, cyber has no geography, so uh, Estonia is no more threatened by either cyber conventional or hybrid risks than any other country. Conventional cyber and also hybrid, uh, hybrid tend to um, present themselves uh, as an element of a normal conventional conflict. So Ukraine obviously has quite a lot of attacks, Georgia as well. But otherwise, uh, it's obvious, uh, and we know all this, that uh, to try to disrupt democratic processes is one of the approaches which uh, Russia has been taking. Mm-hmm. US has uh, told so, France has told so. We have absolutely no reason to not to suspect that in upcoming elections, these are always issues. And here's the most important point about it is that, I mean, disrupting Estonian democratic process is as expensive as disrupting a bigger democracy's processes, but it doesn't really pay off. So I think that here the risk is rather with the bigger, bigger countries like uh, US, like France, Germany, and Europeans have recognized this as well. For example, before the last German elections on the wall of the Ministry of Defense, I saw the slogan which said German freedoms also decided on internet. Mm-hmm. So you see, yes, we are close. Yes, we have been digital for a long time. Yes, we understand the risks very well. Yes, we've had a few incidents of misinformation spread before our own elections, but actually, uh, this capability is much more likely to be used against bigger democracies because there it matters more. We're talking with Kersti Kaljulaid, president of Estonia, about some very serious issues. And when we come back, she's going to talk about Vladimir Putin. We'll be right back to the podcast in 30 seconds. But first, from the creators of Cold Case Files and PD Stories comes an awesome new true crime podcast, I Survived. I Survived shares first-hand accounts of amazing stories of survival. And we've got a teaser for you at the end of this episode, which is amazing. So stick around and check that out. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. 
Now back to our interview with Kirsty Kaljulaid. You know, um, I've spoken to Sven Sakov, the Eva Ek Pajuste, and Ambassador Tilma Klar, and other people who have uh, fed me some very good information over time about the issues and the problems that you speak about. And um, they, they mentioned that there are more threats and other threats emanating from around Russia and in Russia, but it all seems to go back to one person, and the, pre- the, 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 the leader of Russia. You sat down with Mr. Putin. I think it was you met with him last year, I think. Um, how did you find him? What are your thoughts about how he works and operates? I mean, first of all, we need to talk to not only to our partners and allies, but also to those with whom we don't necessarily see eye to eye. And then, of course, we don't gossip about them when we have had these meetings. Sorry. Very good, very good point. Um, can you give me some understanding of um, why it's important for the West to remain open? Uh, because there are a lot of people here in the U.S. and in Europe, based on some of the things that have happened, the attacks, the this, this, this Skripal poisoning in the U.K., the meddling in the election here, that are dead set against exactly what you said, remaining open to discussing. So what, what would you say from an advisory, advisory point of view to the U.S. and the West that have some serious concerns about engaging with Mr. Putin and Russia? But I don't think we are avoiding this engagement. We support each other. We are partners and allies in it. And even if these discussions are difficult, we each and everyone need to, well, responsibly participate. And I think this is what people are doing. This country, European countries, European countries even have agreed on five principles based on which we do uh, talk to, uh, to Russia. And among them is that we will always keep nagging uh, President Putin about Georgia and Ukraine, for example. It's extremely important that we stick to these principles and uh, keep talking with each other how we can, I mean, slowly but surely uh, achieve what we are looking for, which first and foremost is Minsk Agreement, fulfillment of this, liberating Ukraine, ending the war. We will never recognize the occupation of Crimea. Georgia also remains partially occupied. We need to achieve these things gradually. And we need to keep our patience. Have strategic patience is extremely important. It may take a long time. I mean, Baltic states remained occupied for 50 years. Nobody ever recognized that they were occupied. But there's also a lesson which we can learn. Maybe it would not have lasted so long if we had not continued with the rest under the principle of business as usual. Mm -hmm. And this is something which I want to always tell to other people. I mean, let's have strategic patience because it wouldn't work if we say, yes, Crimea is occupied. Yes, Donbass still, I mean, has its perturbances. But otherwise, we separate things. Business can return to as usual. No, it cannot. Mm -hmm. So what are the other key points and key elements uh, of transatlantic relations that uh, you think are important now to discuss? I think um, maybe the most important message, I'm actually citing the final panel of Munich Security Conference from this year. As you know, the topic of the conference was Westlessness, and this zero hypothesis was thrown over, Westlessness, so no West, East or West disintegrating. And... uh, The final conclusion in the final panel was obviously that no, and uh, it was formulated beautifully during that panel, and uh, it was something like this, whatever our quarrels are, wherever our opinions differ, 
Finally, we can afford them because we are based on the same liberal democratic values. We all know a democratic value base altogether. And it's safe even to quarrel because we know that we will finally, when it matters, be closer to each other than to any other country which doesn't share these democratic values. Mm -hmm. So there will never be Westlessness in Europe. Transatlantic bond will remain strong. Transatlantic quarrels will result in better future. And we are safe and secure in knowing that we are partners and allies. We can argue. A couple of more things. Um, during your presidency, what are the most important accomplishments that you've made so far, you believe? I always leave this to other people to, uh, to answer, but I'm very grateful to the Estonian team uh, who uh, ran our Security Council campaign, which for first time ever took Estonia behind this most difficult uh, diplomatic table globally, where all the biggest worries, atrocities, and, uh, and, and hard issues are tackled. And you know, in Estonia, people question sometimes that why are you doing this to ourselves? Why are we going there? And because it's not easy. And you find yourself in uncomfortable positions, need to do compromises. It's hard work. And I always tell that, look, I mean, we do it because we believe in the multilateralism and we believe that only talking and sticking to international law helps us to resolve the problems of this world. Mm -hmm. And yes, we know we are not going to achieve the ideal world in these two years while we are in Security Council, but so do our soldiers who go to missions to Afghanistan, Iraq, Mali, other places. They go knowing as well that they are not going to achieve the ideal world, but they do go. This is the duty, and this is very important for me. Looking ahead, what else is on your agenda? to achieve during your presidency? Estonia is a country which has been economically growing extremely quickly during the last 30 years. And my average salary has gone from something like 20, 25, hard even to measure because there's no statistics practically from the end of the Soviet Union time, to 1,400 euros on month. So it's a huge rise in income levels. There is also quite considerable consolidation with the Western European living standards, therefore. But we haven't yet noticed that this creates us plenty of resources to uh, deal with a uh, lot of social difficulties, uh, problems in rural areas. Luckily, we are very good in education. Estonian school system is, is impressively egalitarian. Up to the end of university, it's free, and from each and every primary and secondary, you can get education which is good enough to take it to the best university in the country, which is among the 300 best globally. Mm -hmm. This we do, this costs us uh, close to 7% of the GDP, enormous amount. But uh, we spend a little bit too little time on those people with illnesses, sicknesses, mental illness, otherwise known as social issues. We have somehow failed to notice that we are a rich country now, and rich country or country, I mean, where people feel themselves good, does not only consist of high GDP per capita. It also means that we take care of the weaker in the society. For me, it's a moral issue. It's extremely important that we, I mean, catch up in this area where we are lagging behind compared to some of our neighbors, Nordic countries, for example.
Right. So um, you're here in the U.S., and we've talked a little bit about your purpose here, um, your, 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 what you're doing and how it's going. But I would like to get some idea from you about just the importance of the U.S. to Estonia uh, on an everyday basis, not just for this initiative, not just for security, but the importance uh, the significance of the U.S. to Estonia and vice versa. But these are everyday issues. I mean, uh, if you think of the uh, deterrence, uh, NATO, we work through NATO, but U.S. has always been in the region also uh, individually. It's establishing uh, quite a big presence in Poland, which is very positive. It's easy, therefore, to organize on a rotational basis also uh, presence in uh, in the Baltic states. And this is daily business for us. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, the visibility is there daily. People know it's there. People, I mean, I mean, military people go to schools, for example, to uh, talk to uh, our children, to show they care. This is important for us. Mm-hmm. It's daily. Mm-hmm. Free seas, if it will start investing, I mean, it's a daily presence in, uh, in new infrastructure and so on. Our people, of course, uh, share a lot of cultural relations. There is an Estonian diaspora because uh, during the Second World War and thereafter, people ran away from communism to remain in a free country, giving up on well, on, on their homes and all their assets arriving here and, I mean, getting new routes here. These people, they're still numerous and uh, we keep up with them. Estonian state nowadays supports even the Estonian schools in, uh, in other countries, including U.S., and so on. And you know, geography nowadays is really not so important. The world is small. Last thing, um, anything you'd like to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? U.S. is an important partner and ally for us. And uh, also, uh, it's so important for us that we are taken as an equal partner. And we are. And we're very grateful. We know we're tiny, but we can catalyze processes. And this is what we always try to do, because we are small, we're mobile, quick, impatient even, one might say. So I see we work very well together. Madam President, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. That was Kersti Kaljule, the president of Estonia. You'll be hearing more about Estonia in the near term. But in the meantime, coming up in our next episode, the coronavirus, COVID-19, as it's called. COVID-19 is a global catastrophe right now. And unfortunately, criminals do not sleep. They don't think just because the hospitals are inundated with folks, let's not hit those hospitals with ransomware. These types of people go after the most vulnerable populations at the most vulnerable time. And it's really important for folks to understand that just because they are working from home, they cannot limit the way that they typically authenticate folks that they work with. If the illness that's associated with the coronavirus is not dark enough, there's an even darker side. Criminals trying to attack, take advantage of hospitals and people working remotely. On our next program, Rachel Toback, CEO of Social Proof, and Adam Myers, Vice President of Intelligence at CrowdStrike, talk about how to protect yourself in a very difficult and challenging time. That's it for this episode. If you have any questions, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green. One word at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. Also, 
Subscribe to our podcast, please. And you can follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast at TUSA Podcast. And if you want even more national security information, check out our newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. And you can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I survived because I convinced him that I was a person. I survived because I was a smarter person than my assailant. I survived because I I believe God saved me. From the network that brought you the Cold Case Files podcast comes I survived. He had his right hand held high up in the air and in that hand was a big knife. The classic stories you know. Pointed the gun at me and he said, if you don't smoke this, I'm going to kill you. And he forced me to smoke crack. And I said, it looks like dynamite. And he said, if you do not do every single thing we tell you to do, you will disintegrate. With new interviews, updating each woman's story with everything that happens after survival. I was waking up in the middle of the night, standing on top of our bed, screaming, and I was positive he was in the room. I felt like a throwaway person. I didn't think anybody would ever love me again. We talk about the justice system. My testimony, I was not a tearful widow. And I think the jury saw me as someone who was not grieving appropriately. How they started to heal. I know in the black community, there's like this stigma that if you go get help, like there's something wrong with you. I really felt strongly that I needed to just basically give away everything we had and drive to Alaska. And so much more. I don't know. You just have to let people understand that every reaction is normal. And if you survived it, you did the right thing. That which does not kill you will make you stronger. I'm so much stronger than I was even before. And I've really enjoyed feeling that way. Surviving is just the beginning of their story. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.